Now the nose flute has been called it has been called the most annoying instrument on earth. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I can't find it in the song. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong musicians, friends, and fans of music break down the most influential albums of all time, as described in Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Over the course of the next hour, we're going to tell the story of this record, this artist. We're going to play tons of clips, so don't worry if you're not super familiar we're going to remind you of everything, and at the end, we're going to vote. Did you really need to hear this record before you died? Now, one last thing. Fair warning. If this is your favorite record of all time, we're going to poke fun at some of this stuff. We're going to poke fun at this. We're fans above all. We are also players and writers and people who have recorded music, and we respect anyone out there making music. We realize how hard it is. But that said, we love to nitpick and have a bit of fun, so get ready for that. I'm very excited to get into this one. This week, we're talking about a record. I'm going to pull from a 2017, so very much after the fact, Pitchfork review. The Pitchfork review says of this album, This album doesn't coddle. It unsettles. It tastes not like warm milk, but coppery and bitter like blood. Despite its two decades plus spent soundtracking makeout sessions, it cradles a terrible loneliness in its heart. Despite its reputation as dinner party music, it is straight up discomfort food. We're talking, of course, about Portishead's Dummy. So we can give you, the audience, a little taste of what we've been listening to. Let's go ahead and play a clip of the biggest single, at least in the U.S. market, from this record. The song is called Sour Times. We're going to introduce our gang of critics and complainers shortly by throwing it around the room for a tweet-length review. I'm going to kick it first to Tom. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is Tom here. My tweet-length review is, A depressed gang of hipsters travel throughout time, plucking out snippets of different eras of music to combine into an album that refuses to be stuck in any one decade or is possibly the most 90s album of all time. I still can't decide. Along the way, <laughs> they possibly invent a new genre and discover that most elusive of all creatures, a DJ that actually earns his keep. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> wow. We're definitely going to have to get deeper into that as it goes, but thank you, Tom. 
And we have a very special guest on the podcast, friend of the podcast and podcaster himself, rocker Conan Neutron. I'd love to hear your tweet first, Conan, and then we can introduce you after that. First of all, discomfort food is going to be hard to beat from that Pitchfork review. That's pretty good. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll do my level best. Uh, moody, cinematic, and unsettling vibey masterwork with some of the loneliest, most isolated lyrics possible. Just don't ask to put it in a sex scene in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think we have a lot to dissect here. This is Rob. I'm very excited to be walking you down Portis Head Lane, dark and dank as it may be. And my tweet length review is part Austin Powers spy soundtrack, part Sade gets a drum machine for Christmas. If you hate the sonic taste of unprocessed, clean and pristine sound, and also kind of wished you lived inside a subterranean after-hours club down some dark European alleyway, then Dummy is definitely for you. Wow. I mean, the subterranean European club down a dark alleyway sounds pretty dope, I gotta say. I wouldn't <laughs> that hate sounds that. sounds okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. mad at that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk general impressions before we get into the background. We've I've done a lot of research here. I can tell you, I'm going to tell you the story of this band, how this record came to be. But before we do that, let's just talk about how your weeks were. Tom, give us some more context. So... You know, we talked before about like songs or artists that you feel you have to roll up the windows when you come to the stoplight because you're embarrassed. And I had that experience this week, not because I was embarrassed, but because as like a schlubby 40 something dad, I did not feel remotely hip enough to be listening to this music. It is at times painfully hip and I still kind of loved it. It was atmospheric and it was cool. <laughs> and I got to give it to Beth Gibbons. She has a great voice for this band. She doesn't have a powerful voice that she's going to be belting it out there. In fact, it sounds most of the time like the microphone was cranked way high and she's singing really quietly into it. But it gives you this cool in-your-ear-not-in-the-room sound. I thought the production on this was pretty top-notch, and I'm not a fan of scratchy-scratchy DJ stuff. But it really worked. No. It, I don't know. I dug it. <laughs> yes. Shockingly. You know... No, that's great. Thank you for that, Tom. And I would be remiss if I didn't give Conan a chance to introduce himself properly. So we have Conan here. You might recall he was on our show before on the Stooges. What was that record called? Raw Power? Funhouse. Yeah. Fun we, we did Sorry. Funhouse. How dare you, sir? Sorry. Raw Power is great, though. My drug-addled brain is very confused at times. But Conan, empresario of Conan Newton and the Secret Friends, host of his own podcast. Conan, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. And in, in fact, I uh, I saw you on the recent uh, Conan Newton and the Secret Friends tour. You sure did. That was awesome. That was nice to see you in person. At the highlight of the tour stop, I assume, a Monday night in Sacramento. (laughs) Monday in Sacramento, a.k.a. the tour (laughs) highlight. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the most successful of all of them, yeah. But tell us how you're feeling about about Portishead, maybe a little bit of where you're coming to from, where you're coming from on this album. So first of all, I think Tom was just uh, afraid to bump it too hard because uh, he might be just absolutely mobbed by nubile young women that wanted to get with him. And uh, it's just embarrassing <laughs> at a certain <laughs> yes. point, right? You know, That's, that is my biggest problem in life currently. So it's, yes. yeah. it's your cross to bear, really. Yeah. <laughs> I love Portishead. I... This is, wasn't a homework assignment for me. This is something where I was just like, oh, wow, I can't wait to get back to this. And, and when I say I love Portishead, I mean I love all of the records, including the third record, which most people are either not aware of or don't rate as highly and I think is just as interesting. Uh, the other thing I want to kind of tag on with point about the vocals, there's a Roseland New York City live show that they did that they recorded a record for, a live record. And 
you really get an idea of just how much of a powerhouse Beth Gibbons actually is. Like, she is nailing it, and, like, their take on Sour Times on that, which is a song that was sort of, like, they eventually kind of felt like was sort of saddled with them and sort of like, okay, no one's ever going to, a bunch of people are never going to pay attention to anything other than this song. <laughs> uh, I, I hesitate to say screw it up, but they do an interesting take on it on this, like, you know, this concert of record that is sort of like, wow, that's one way to do it. That's crazy. Like it's, it's like somehow even more minor key and despondent and like kind of dirgy almost. Uh, meanwhile, every other part of the show for their live show is like, Oh, this is just like a impeccable band putting together these compositions that were put together when you couldn't do this in garage band. You couldn't just like put it, okay, let's do the trap set and let's have like, you know, uh, the sitar come in here. It's no, these guys were like masters of their craft at a time period where the technology was only starting to get there. And hold on. Masters of craft might be, listen, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Conan, but right. I'll just say I did ultimately, I was coming fresh to this record this week and I ultimately do have a relatively positive feeling about it. So I'm going to mostly agree with some of the, the points you said. But let's attack that Masters of Craft thing. I thought time and time again when I was listening to interviews with these people, they're like, this is the only way we knew how to do it. This is the only equipment we could afford. We just kept trying different things. So while I agree that a lot of care and experimentation was put in, which are typically things I do like and respect, and I think we all do on this podcast, Masters of Craft doesn't seem quite the right thing to say for the making of this record. Am I wrong? Yes. Yeah, I think the proof's kind of in the pudding. Like, it did come out sounding very well-constructed and well-put-together. And, you know, a guy who is still a knife maker or something, who's still making knives the way they used to make them 500 years ago and not using modern technology, that guy's still a master of his craft, even if he's using outdated technology or he's doing it in a way that there are better ways to do it if the product that comes out is really good. And I do think that the product was really good. And when I was like, oh, they recorded all this to tape and they were making albums of themselves that they were then fucking up and using to for samples, like maybe that's not the smartest way to do it, but I can't fault the product that came out of it. And also, one of the things about their sampling process that I find interesting is that it's not something where it's it's the samples are very clean and very just dropped in. There's like weird like reverberation from something that you don't hear where not only is not coming clean at all, like it actually that's part of the aesthetic and part of that actually helps the compositions to give it sort of an otherworldly cinematic is wildly overused, but cinematic feel. And I don't feel too bad about saying uh, cinematic because Portishead basically started with that uh, To Kill a Dead Man short film. Like it started out like they had this idea to begin with. I think cinematic is maybe overused, but also appropriate here. Some of the stuff this drew out of me right away was other soundtrack music. And as I read deeper and deeper about what they were listening to and even what they sampled, people like Ennio Morricone, Layla Schifrin kept popping up again and again. The other name, I'm sure that will resonate with you guys, that reminded me that I thought of quickly in the production style was Wu-Tang. Yes. RZA's production style, that kind of really dirty, grimy thing. Similar style, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to follow up on your cinematic concept, it's not a coincidence that Wu-Tang are associated with the cinema, yeah. with movies, with like love of films and putting clips of films in their movies. That definitely influenced their aesthetic as well. So this, you know, the record definitely sets a mood. There's absolutely no denying that. It's not a mood that I particularly love personally, but that's not going to stop me from 
respecting it. So. You just don't think they're masters of their craft, which is the, the sentence that, that <laughs> <laughs> you felt I, you the need to interject sense. in that I was making. Yes. There were guys in, in New York at the time, certainly, who were masters of sampling and masters of scratching. Mm-hmm. I'm not commenting on the quality of the product. I think Tom refuted my point effectively by talking about that the proof is really in the pudding. So I can accept that. They made something, and it sets a very clear mood, and it's internally consistent. So in that sense, yes, I'll I'll see that point. I'm not a huge fan of trip hop in general. Like I'm not. I, I don't really care about tricky or massive attack or the other uh, purveyors of the genre. It is Portishead specifically that that I that I champion, and and part of that has to do because of how they put everything together. So and they would say they're not trip hop, right? They don't. Like they the they label don't like the term. Yeah. They issue yeah. it. They kind of scoff at it. They've mocked it. <laughs> so the massive attack connection. So you know, let's let's use this as a segue to get into the background, and we're going to talk about how they're connected to massive attack. And that genre that some would say they spawned or helped spawn or helped popularize. But let's talk first about who is at the core of this band. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who aren't Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discographies, the new podcast, for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and the guest explore an artist or band's entire recorded output and rate everything from zero to five stars. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating the zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating their own work, Mike Watt rating Minutemen, Anthony Fantano on The Velvet Underground, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. We recommend you subscribe and listen. The guy's name is Jeff Barrow, and he's credited on the record with, of course, production, but also playing Rhodes, which is a keyboard drums at times, string arrangements. He does all the record scratching is my understanding. But this was really his brainchild from an early, early days. And he was the one that was shopping around skeletal demos, trying to find a singer, trying to find bandmates, trying to find collaborators. So as it happens, he grew up in a small coastal town outside of Bristol called, you guessed it, Portishead. It's where the name comes from. And he's like a teenager in this small town There's apparently one other guy in town, a DJ, who's a little older, who's DJing a local hip-hop night. At the time, there weren't that many people into hip-hop, because you got to think, this is like the late 80s. Hip-hop was big in New York, and it was about to become global, I would guess, but it hadn't quite, sounds like it hadn't quite trickled out to every corner of the globe, or certainly not all the teenagers of the world. So they kind of connected. That DJ's name was Andy Smith. And although he doesn't actually get credited as being in Portishead, it seems like he was a big part of helping this guy Jeff Barrow, giving him records, showing him, introducing him to things he would later sample, and being sort of a somewhat of an in-house DJ for the band in the sense of curating some of what they would listen to and how they would go about their techniques. Interesting. I do like the story of how Beth ended up... I believe the story was that... Jeff was at some government program where you could get 40 bucks a week right. to start a small business. And she was also there to try to 
basically scam 40 bucks a week off of the government and that's how they met up which is fantastic it just puts you in that mindset of like we talked about it on the bell and sebastian episode the sort of program for unemployed musicians it's like i mean all musicians it's just a bunch of like unemployed people sitting around trying to figure (laughs) out how they're gonna make ends meet (laughs) so perhaps even more important than that moment in the timeline is before that jeff was employed at a place called coach studios a proper studio in bristol this would be about 1990 era. This is when he would be 19, and he was a low-level runner. Like, he literally made tea. But it was when Massive Attack, and the other, let's say, large Bristol band, was making their debut record called Blue Lines. And he was the lowest of the low, as he himself put it, lowest rung. He wasn't an engineer or anything like that. He was literally just going to get coffee or tea, whatever they drink over there. But he would be able to kind of steal studio time in the middle of the night because I guess he had a key to the place. And so he would go in there and work on demos and try to learn a little bit about how to work the material. Massive Attack, the band, saw some promise in him and they actually gave him his first sampler, an Akai S1000, to get to get started. And so a lot of this record was conceived on that on that sampler that he was gifted by this more successful band. And it was also conceived and even recorded in some cases in these very late night hours, which I think does say something about the mood of the record that comes through. Absolutely. It's, it's like totally late night listening to, to a certain degree, you know? Oh, a million percent. This is not like going to the baseball game, throw on, throw on some Portishead music. <laughs> I actually listened to this album predominantly in my headphones when my family was asleep and I'd be like walking around the house trying to be very quiet as I was doing things. I was like, this is the perfect music for creeping through a house. Like I said, I felt like I was infiltrating the Czechoslovakian embassy or something like that. It was just very like, oh, all right. Yeah, now I'm opening the fridge real quietly. Yeah, there we go. Nobody's going to hear me. Yeah. So Massive Attack was the first big Bristol band to hit, and they were also sometimes called trip hop. Now, I have to be honest, I don't know a ton about Massive Attack. I tried to listen to the record in question, Blue Lines, this week. Honestly, audience, I found it kind of unlistenable, and I went back to Portishead very quickly. But I should also, this is just anecdote for people who might not know Massive Attack, but this is the one with the one of the band members is speculated to be the true identity of Banksy. I don't know if that's been officially disproven or proven yet. But it's a pervasive rumor, for sure. But it's a pervasive rumor, and he certainly is in Massive Attack, and he is a street artist. So anyway, the nice thing is that this band believes in him, and this small Bristol scene seemed to be getting going at that time, and other bands later came out of it. But that said, uh, Jeff of Portishead, had he spent a long time shopping around these demos and looking for that singer. So then it, it took him a while. He auditioned a bunch of people. He tried some rappers to come in and go over some of his demo tracks. And then, as Tom mentioned, he eventually met Beth Gibbons, the vocalist on this record, at, at that meeting of government subsidies for <laughs> small business owners. And they were the only two musical people at that, at that place. Yeah. Talk about a matchmaker, matchmaker situation, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that somewhere along the way, he had another job because of folks he met through the studio. He got a job writing and making beats for the follow-up album to Nana Cherry's Raw Like Sushi. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so really started to hone his chops working with Nana in the studio, sending her beats, writing with her, 
on her follow-up to Raw Like Sushi, which was called Homebrew. I bring that up because we have a little bit of a long-standing relationship with Nana Cherry. I just thought <laughs> anytime she comes up, I need to say something about it. Just want to get some more fan mail in, huh? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's like he was doing that, and he's like, you know what? Maybe I should just scam 40 bucks off the government. That sounds like yeah. a better idea than working on <laughs> exactly. another Nana Cherry album. True recipe for success. So he meets Beth. They hit it off. He kind of pitches his idea to her, and she seems like the perfect companion. So they pretty much formed the band Portishead right there as a duo. And his main idea, recall, was to mix the idea of hip-hop sampling and process sound with layered organic instruments over top, for instance, a real drummer and a real singer to give it some organic feel and some soul. So he he did have that in his head, and Beth seemed like the, the last piece of the puzzle. So they go in, they start recording. I think they did one of the songs just as a duo and next thing they know you know this this record actually takes a long time to complete it goes across many studios they don't have funding at this point but they're just trying to trying to figure something out they've founded their company so that they can continue a music production company so that they continue getting subsidies from the government and the next guy they meet is this guy adrian utley so this dude is credited with bass guitar theremin Hammond, string arrangements, production. He's kind of a jack of all trades on this record. Although, interestingly, he was not an official member of the band when they were recording it. Hmm. They it seems like they added him right after it was released and it started to pick up some traction. But he was an integral part of making the record. So this dude was a studio musician. Or, sorry, he was a hired gun on tour. He was playing with Jeff Beck at the time. He had toured with the Jazz Messengers in in UK. And so he had some pretty serious chops and I do think you hear some of that on the record. That's the core 3 that make up the band to this day. Even though Adrian wasn't technically part of the band when they made Dummy, they they added him in officially right after that and those are the three people that we're really going to be talking about. There are a few other people in the Portishead orbit. There's other musicians credited on the session. A guy called Clive Deemer plays drums when they're on tour. Yeah. And I think he plays in Adrian's band too, if I remember correctly. Like a bunch of people in his jazz band play in the, in the live band, which sounds okay. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> sounds sounds like that'd be a good idea. Yeah, let's, yes, yes, I will do that. Sounds good. So when you hear these guys talk about trying to shop these demos around, work on it, I mean, they spent a long time agonizing over a lot of minutia, and we have said many times on this podcast that, you know, what we're looking for is people who care about what they're doing. These guys definitely cared. They had specific ideas about how they wanted it to sound, how they didn't want it to sound. And they took their time with it, trying to get that. It's already been alluded to, but they used some pretty oddball techniques. They not only sampled directly from records into that sampler, they also recorded their own samples into a sampler from instruments they played. Then they printed them to vinyl then when the vinyl came, they would like step on it, literally, yeah. a bunch, to scratch it up to make it dirty. Yeah, it's, it's too it's too clean. I want to hear some pops and cracks and I'm curious if you guys read because I was trying to get an answer to how did they have the money to print vinyl <laughs> records of small samples? That seemed odd to me. Did they have access to some kind of weird special vinyl machine? Yeah, I mean you can do short run like yeah like acetates or uh, yeah like not exactly like a full production run of vinyl i can't i'm blanking on what you call them well it sounds like they did do that i was just a little surprised that they were able to it seems harder than 
that wasn't the only thing they did, I should say. Yeah. They bounced stuff down to cassette tapes to dirty it yep. up. They played acoustic guitars into crappy dictaphones, handheld dictaphones. They would record drums at really, really low volume and then reamp them through guitar amps yep. to distort them out. They There was one story about sending a vocal take by radio signal to over to a radio and <laughs> right. then recording that. <laughs> You know, so they, they interesting ideas. And also, I should add that the second record leans even more into that, like less towards the sampling, but it's even grainier and harsher and more like uh, much to the chagrin of many people who just wanted a Sour Times Part Two, where it was like, oh, no, this is what, 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 are, you do, what are you doing here? Uh, to me, I loved it. I, think it was, I thought it was fantastic because, of course, I love that. Yeah. They seem like a band that's really into experimentation, generally speaking. Yes, absolutely. And then after those two, there was like a huge, like long, like 10 year break, right? And they, and they do this, uh, this third record, which I know is not what we're discussing, but I'm only bringing it up because it's, it's not really trip hop at all, but it's definitely got that like soundtracky spy music sort of feel, but like in a way that's like completely different, yet it still sounds like them. And I find that record to be absolutely remarkable. And I think it's notable that they, they managed to like lean into what made them interesting and not do the expected thing at any moment in time. Can you help me define trip hop? I mean, I read the Wikipedia article on it, but I'm not any really clear to understanding what defines it. Is it just down tempo? Like like real bass heavy drum beats, things that like you would you would hear in like breakbeat drums, but kind of melancholic. Yeah. Right? Like the like the sound is like if not sad, brooding maybe is mm, is, yeah. is a good term for it. Yeah, I, I definitely picture it as stoner music, but for super depressed stoners that don't want to <laughs> listen to like up tempo hip hop, it's <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. It's a very specific state of mind you have to be in to listen to trip hop. It's not yeah. necessarily my genre. It can be background music too. I mean you kind of mentioned how it's in that um, Pitchfork article that people think it's dinner party music. Yeah. And a lot of trip hop is kind of dinner party music. It's stuff that's just kind of interesting going on in the background. It's inoffensive. It's never going to fucking take over the conversation or anything like that. Right. But I do think that this – I can see why they prefer – what are they? Music noir or whatever they called themselves. Like I can see why they don't want to be associated with trip hop because really the only thing that is even hip hop adjacent is just – sampling drums and stuff like that right like that's the only thing that you could even say is like super hip-hoppy with the exception of the wicka 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 on the, the record player <laughs> which is probably the down point the down, like the low point of most of these songs is when they really lean into the wicka wicka it's it's not aged super well, we'll say, no, but uh, no, yeah, no. but but it also was used for the the powers of douchebaggery for uh, most acts, so it's understandable that certainly DJ Shadow too, right? Like that's and to a lesser extent, I don't know if you even remember these guys, but Sneaker Pimps, they were they had a big hit when I was at Tower yeah, Records. Six Underground, that was their big hit, right? Yeah, yeah, that was on the soundtrack too, right? I think I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hmm. And I think that it's notable to me that. <laughs> Like what's what was what was the the Senate hearing on uh, pornography? Well, you know it when you see it. Like with trip hop, you know it when you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I it is really it. hard to define, right? Other than the fact that, like, okay, there's a bass heavy uh, like drums. It's it's kind of like not meant to be foregrounded all the time, and it tends to be generally melancholic. And that that's about all you can say. Other than that, it's various flavors of the bands. I find Porta said to be on the upper echelon of that. Again, for a genre, I'm not mad at trip hop. I just don't. Most of it doesn't grab me in the same way. For me, it's the songcraft and the writing of the songs, which are somewhat unorthodox, 
Like some of the arrangements is like, wow, I did not expect that to be the thing that happens there at all. Yeah. To me, that was fascinating because I heard this in, in real time. And, you know, at the time I was just exploring around for like anything like cool or weird or crazy to sort of like dig into. And it was like from another planet for me. I'm like, I don't even know. How do you even make this music? Like, where does this come from? <laughs> I will I will definitely echo the how do you even make this music? There were times where I was just like, what the fuck is happening here? Yeah. <laughs> I will say the very samey album. They're definitely going for a sound. They execute on that sound. I did have a little bit of a issue with the way that a lot of the songs are constructed. It's really just that a lot of them have really long outros. And I just, I like to tighten it up a little bit if you're not doing a whole lot in the outro, especially if it's not, you're not adding layers, taking layers away. You're sort of, again, that's where they're sort of leaning into the wicka wicka is on a lot of those it's outros. It's not cinematic, Tom. Come uh, on, dude. Know, but, <laughs> yeah. But I didn't need to see that, you know, movie of the DJ go wicka wicka, wicka wicka again for a minute and a half at the end of like the fifth song. Let's talk about the timing. So this came out August 22nd, 1994. It feels like a heady time for music. And Conan, you just said you were working at the record store at that time. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was what kind of music were you listening to at the time when this would have come out and and changed your direction a bit? Sure, sure. So I and again, it's 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 adorable to recount these tales because uh, it's going to sound like it's you know from the 1920s or something for the kids. But I mean, I was at the time getting exposed to because I had instant access to all of this music. I was finding like, oh, look, there's country music that I think is great. That just like you know, it's not what they were playing on the radio at the time. And I like some of these jazz records are really cool. And I was basically finding examples in all these genres that I maybe had dismissed because it didn't really fulfill my criteria of you know being loud generally like angry raucous punk post-punk and and rock that finds the same middle ground for that so i kind of hit me at the perfect time where, where i was just like what is this like where i don't and i had no frame of reference for like any of that stuff at all and and it's something where i was uh, i had a I had a two disc a Neo Morricone best of uh, CD, nice. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man, this band kind of reminds me of like a Neo Morricone. That's rad. That's super cool." And I was like, "What's up with this singer? She's like so interesting. Like, like what does she even like?" And then like you know they had a thing where they were very. Um, their image was very controlled, right, and sort of mysterious. And I was like, "Oh, that's so cool! They're so mysterious, you know." Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beth Gibbons like did, doesn't give interviews. No, basically, yeah. yeah. And and honestly, like respect for her, right? Because like, what would happen if they would have they would have centered her? They would have made her into the story and tried to like you know do what they do to like any kind of uh, singer of note who happens to be like a even vaguely attractive female and make her into a pop chanteuse, which is like I just don't have any interest in that at all yeah i did see an interview i watched like a portishead documentary that had interviews with her and i can yeah. tell why they did not want to put her in front of the camera she did not seem comfortable at all it's not Wouldn't her, look at the camera yeah. hair in her face lots of long pauses and ums and ahs but the one thing that she made very clear to everybody is that she's i have no interest in being a famous pop singer i do right. not want that at all 
Absolutely. Atypical for a, for a band. That yeah, has a huge hit, yeah. right? <laughs> Look, guys, I'm just trying to collect my $40 every week and go home. Right, exactly. <laughs> just keep it simple. Well, and you got to realize, no. I mean, this this record especially, it, it's on like the 500 greatest albums of all time by Rolling Stone, right? Like, I mean, this it, it is impossible to overstate how huge Portishead was, and specifically that song. Like, the other, the other songs. Let's talk about it, Conan. It made a huge splash. It won the Mercury Prize that year, awarded to exactly one UK album every year, beating out Oasis and PJ Harvey and a few other UK luminaries. But let's segue now into our favorite segment, By the Numbers, since you asked how it in fact performed. First number I want to throw out there before we get to performance metrics is 18. It's the number of months it took to complete this record. And that didn't include the long, I think, two-year period of demos where Jeff Barrow was shopping these around. But it was it was recorded in drips and drabs and spurts and fits, right? It, it took place over a long period of time, and I think that's important to note. When you listen to something, you don't know how it was made. Well, it was made with a lot of care and thought and rethought. Second number I want to throw out there, 14. I always like the ages, 14 is the number of years, the age difference between Adrian and Jeff. So Jeff was like 18 when they got together, and this guy Adrian Utley was in his early 30s. Hmm. And at that period of your life, that's a pretty big swing to be in a band with somebody like that. So just find that stuff interesting. Yeah, this, this kid better have it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> seriously, seriously. It makes you, I'm more questioning the guy in his early 30s just slightly, but I guess he liked what he heard on the demos, so fair enough. Seems to have worked out well for him. He he was like almost a sesh bro, so it's sort of like, well, if it's here, it's here, you know. And it's definitely yeah. more interesting yeah. than just doing session work for, um, uh, you know, gold frap or whatever. I don't yeah. know. It's like, do I get part of that forty dollars a week? Is that coming to me too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You need some of that sweet, sweet Nana Cherry money. Yeah, exactly. So I got the impression that Adrian was a guy who was playing live a lot, and that was how he was making his living, but he was kind of struggling to make a living, and that some of his friends were urging him to get into the studio and put his ideas to tape, that that was a better way to make it as a musician. So I don't think he was quite a session player at the time, but he certainly had the chops for it. So speaking of performance, yeah, it made a a big splash, not just in the UK, but in the US. Number five is the next number I want to throw out there. It's the highest chart position of Sour Times in the US, on the US rock charts. Hmm. It actually charted higher than in the UK, but in UK they had multiple charting hits, just none of them reached quite that high. So it was a big hit, and I, of course, remember it from that era of music as well. In MTV, there was a video. And the last number I want to throw out there Three million. It went three times platinum in the UK. It is close to platinum, if not already platinum in the US. So this record has sold over four million worldwide. Yeah. Nothing to sneeze yeah. at. And what's you know what else? What else is happening around that time? I mean, you have like that huge hit uh, down by the water. PJ Harvey did that. They, they, oh, they yeah. beat this out for the Mercury. Huge, ubiquitous. Uh, there was like three. Just unstoppable Oasis hits on the time from the one that it also beat out. Definitely, maybe it was not like a slow year. No, this this beat out this beat out the other one. This beat out what's the story? Morning Glory, the oh. one with Wonderwall on it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, there, there you go. <laughs> Rob, yeah. I do want to have a point of order here. 
platinum in the UK is 300,000 albums. It's not a million for platinum in the UK. Platinum oh, in the US really? is a million. Platinum in the UK is 300,000. But I know it has sold over 3 million copies total. Well, that's unnecessarily confusing, British people. Th- th- there's <laughs> a uh, Silkworm record called Italian Platinum that I always <laughs> always, always love that title. <laughs> that's pretty great, yeah. <laughs> it's 68,000 copies for right, Italian it's Platinum. It's an incredibly arbitrary number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Italian Platinum, we love you guys for listening to us. We hope you're enjoying what we do here. We love doing this every week. We love researching bands telling you about what we found out nitpicking these records which we're about to do as we get into the tracks we just wanted to remind you and well first thank you for listening but also remind you that we have some cool ways you can support us you can buy a sweet 1001 album complaints t-shirt at our merch store linked in the episode or you could even join our brand new patreon buy us a beer to keep doing this you don't have to but we'd love you even more if you do. It takes a lot of beers to make these episodes, trust me, when I say that. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> it sure does. So uh, what do you say, gents, we get into these songs? Let's get into this focus list. Let's do it. All right. Let's start with the album opener. I'm going to pronounce this song title, Mysterions. <laughs> Just for listener clarification, and in case you guys didn't read this, I wanted to point out that the opening of this particular track is an example of that process where Adrian is playing, I think it's a guitar at the opening. They put it right into the sampler, his organic playing. It then got pressed to vinyl. It then got literally stepped on and beat up to make it scratched. It then got resampled, and that is what we're hearing. That's not the duck that somebody is playing, though, right? That comes in right away. <laughs> talk, talk about one of the most obscure uh, entries uh, <laughs> in your musical discography, right? It's true, though, man. Some of these tones I find so pleasant, and they achieve their goal, like you, like we're saying, right, of making it feel so retro, so... Like, even if it's not from an old record, it feels like it's from an old record through those processes. That said, then there's these record scratches in there that just feel dated. And my question to you guys, or especially Conan as a Portishead fan, can you defend record scratchy scratch (laughs) in this context? Go. (laughs) I'm not saying the DJ doesn't earn his keep. I think that's a different question. But I'm talking about that specific artistic choice, which is throughout this record. Of scratchy scratch. Oh, it's all over the place, man. Yeah, it's, it's like somebody got a new toy is what it, it feels like. Well, what, I, what I'll say is that I, I feel this record 
and this band utilized scratching in such a way that is actually there as like another instrument, which is how that's kind of supposed to be and how I think most people think that they're doing that. And uh, well, they well they they did they they could call record scratching that process of printing vinyl and throwing it on the ground a few times. Sure, right? sure. It's like a different yeah. Yeah. meaning of that terminology, but I think it's something that it works as a, a breaker too for the mood because this is moody music, right? So it, it's a way to sort of um, it goes down to the record scratch. I bet you're wondering how I got myself in this situation. You know, like that's yeah. <laughs> think yeah. of like what you think of with a record scratch, right? Is it's to like change the the focus and well, the attention. There's, listen, there's two flavors of record scratch though, and I do think that it is important. Because I think one of them, generally speaking, works really well, and one of them I don't really like. And there is the record scratch where the entire thing is just the wicka, 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 wicka. And then there is the scratch, 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 drop into a sample that you're scratching. Yes. Let it play for a little bit. Scratch that, drop back into it. That works incredibly well. And I think they use it to great effect many times on this album. Like you said, to kind of like introduce something and break it up. But when it's just in a vacuum and all you get is the the scratchy scratchy and then it doesn't drop into anything. I don't really like that too much. It's a good point. And also I think that you hit on a, a good point with that as well because like this is pre-mashup culture. Mashups were not a thing. That, that was yeah. Not, yeah. you couldn't have like a careless whispers in the dark. I think that that's the 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 slayer uh <laughs> George Michael one you know like that was not a thing so the idea of like just having these unique and different genres put together in such a way and have the the context removed from these parts and have those used in as a songwriting mechanism and in some cases a mood breaker is awesome also like this has got a real sci-fi spooky sound right i mean this is that theremin of course oh yeah 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 it's interesting i i did double check that this was a theremin but there are other parts in the record where he's it kind of sounds like a theremin, but he's using a bow on the guitar strings. Yeah, no, it, it, which is which is awesome because it's like it's you're, it's you don't quite know exactly. And again, the guys back to them being kind of mysterious. You don't quite know what it is that they're doing to make this like super dark music. Well, and the other thing that he's using a lot of times is he was using a screwdriver as a slide. Yeah, which is really cool. Uh, kind of unnecessary because you could just use a slide, but you did kind of see him doing this weird manipulation of the instrument, which I thought was really cool. And to get past the sort of record scratchy stuff to talk about this song, which I do really like, I love the drums on this song. The snare oh, drum great. sounds yeah. like a piece of paper getting ripped or something like that. And that has to be that recorded at super low volume so they can get all the dynamic range of the snare out of it. Because usually the snare just fucking overpowers everything when you're playing really loud. And I thought that it was the dynamics on it were very cool, top notch. It was the first thing that struck me the first time I put this album on. I was like, their drum recording on this particular song is fantastic. And I really want to know how they did that. And then steal that when I start my trip hop band that I in my forties, <laughs> of course, I'm going to start cause I'm super hip. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently the Mysterians were, do you guys know the Thunderbirds, the puppets, like the sort of sci-fi puppet, like deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Uh, but no. it, it was this like children's, like Th- Thunderbirds are go. When you think of uh, Team America World Police, you know mm-hmm. how those, yeah. those puppets are? That's what they were kind of lampooning slash celebrating is like, that's what the characters look like. So it was this puppet show where they're dashing around um, and you know, fighting these evildoers. And the the captain's main enemy was the Mysterians. And this guy who wrote the music for Thunderbirds, this guy, Barry Gray, 
uh, had it like he like did it with this huge orchestra, like for this you know weird little sci-fi puppet show for kids, basically. And he's like writing this like crazy orchestral uh, scores with all this like you know weird esoteria with it. And so the the Mysterians theme had a theremin <laughs> in it apparently, and so that's apparently the inspiration for um, for this song is is to like utilize that in in a way uh, without sounding like you know Thunderbirds necessarily. It's funny because I was like, how could they possibly have afforded to do that? And I was like, oh, classical musicians don't make any fucking money. They're like walking out getting $5 bills a piece. Everybody in the 30-piece orchestra gets paid five bucks for their day. Like, Wait, you're getting 40 a week for nothing? Yeah. <laughs> we should probably clarify for the audience, just in case anyone doesn't know what a theremin is, it's that high, whiny, 50s sci-fi sound. Sounds like an alien ship tuning in its antenna or something yeah. and it's played it's an it's an electromagnetic field that your hand just sits in air and disrupts to get these different tones so hopefully that's calling to mind you've seen it now but i just want to make sure everyone knows what that you is. hear it in like every sci-fi movie in the 50s yeah there's the um the beach boy song that's that's uh like that starts off good vibrations it. good vibrations yeah and it's usually kind of just used as like a, a like a noise ma- a great gig in the sky it's got theremin in it right pink floyd it's generally used as a noise making apparatus but there are there have been people that have been very... But there is a way to use it for the forces of good. <laughs> right, exactly. Like Clara Rockmore, <laughs> who is this uh, incredible... She would do these concerts. She was considered the best theremin player in the world. That like She would do these concerts that people just hear her like, just do a whole show of, of like playing uh, all these compositions on, on the theremin. And it was like a big night at the theater to go see Clara Rockmore. <laughs> Not enough edibles in the world to make him enjoy that show. I remember there is a documentary about the guy who invented the theremin. Yeah. It's one of the more recently invented instruments that I watched when I was a kid. It's yeah, it's kind of an interesting watch if you want to. I think it's just called Theremin or something. Like it's called like, Yeah, cuz that's his name, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, Leon Theremin. Yeah. yeah. It crosses the bridge between like synthesizers and 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 orchestral kind of stuff, right? Like it, it's got that kind of it, it, it occupies a unique space. Again, mostly utilized to make goofy noises for aliens to walk around to and stuff. <laughs> you know, I let's segue out here though cuz I want to talk about for a second the synthesizer versus the theremin because mm-hmm. in this particular song i really did not like the synth swells at the end because the synth mm. swells made it sound like somewhat modern music and i was like oh you kind of pulled me out of this really weird vintage smattering of a bunch of different sounds with synth that just for some reason screamed like this era and so I really was like, ah, that seemed like a miss to me on this particular song. It's not like they sound bad. They're just out of place. Interesting. I know what you mean, though. It definitely sounds like a clear era, whereas a lot of the stuff is sounds more retro. Yeah, undefinable, like including the theremin itself. Yeah, which yeah. kind of sounds like the 1960s. I'm looking this up, and apparently, it's not actually a theremin. It's actually an Andis Martinot, which okay. It's got a, the wavering sound similar to a theremin, but it's more like. <laughs> I'd have to show you a picture, which is not good for a podcast. Uh, but like, it's it's. 
specifically theremin-like and has appeared in many science fiction horror films as well and you know radiohead and oh so it's like a it's like a dollar store theremin is that what you're trying to say? it's an well, off-brand yeah theremin? i'm trying to like describe what i'm seeing which is that like it's it's got like it looks like an organ but like there's like a thing that looks like it should be in a sci-fi movie near anyway it's much more complicated than a theremin but apparently you, you play it off of keys wow. so they found the most expensive way to get the exact sound of a theremin without just buying a theremin <laughs> yeah. which is pretty cheap <laughs> that's a, a epiphany for me because like i was like well that's all right you know. that's weird because the it's credited in the in the album credits as theremin but maybe they were using that you know maybe theremin became like kleenex for anything that makes this weird wobbly sound well i think they used the theremin but i think the thing that they were homaging from the mysterians uh mm. was this ondas martin oh, i see thing, this classical okay. instrument and it was used on like Star Trek and so anyway, what, what's it say? It's just making that weird. It's making a sound that we think of as cultural shorthand as science fiction, right? It's meant to be spooky and kind of like, oh, okay. Well, I guess my take on this is that it's pretty good. I think it's a good table setter for the rest of the album, Mysterians. That is, it is indicative of what you're gonna get. That said, I don't know nothing about. I think one of my main complaints for the record, yes, it's moody, yes, it's ambient, but melodically it often feels unfinished a lot of the melodies kind of just get put out there and just hang there unresolved and it feels you can tell that the way they crafted a lot of this was completely separately beth gibbons would hear the tracks and write something you know you know what i mean like there was the they collaborated in a way that where they were completely in separate rooms 100 yeah. percent of the time and I don't know, I just feel like this one suffers a little bit from that. I think it they land the melodies a little more strongly on a couple of the other tunes, but this one's kind of in the middle for me in terms of my enjoyment. I found the melody unresolving aspect to just be kind of unsettling, and yeah. I thought that that was pretty cool. Again, because it, it is perfect table setting for the album. It's It's an unsettling album. Yeah. Well, and, and so you get this is the first one, right? And this is like you know, like all right, what's what's going on here? And then and then the second song, it's like oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's roll, let's roll right into it. The biggest hit in the U.S. anyway, the one that charted at number five, and we played a snippet of it at the top. Let's play another clip now of the song "Sour Times." Am I what it was? My brain is at war on this one. I remember when this was out. I heard it many times. It was everywhere. On the radio. <laughs> it was and everywhere. on MTV. <laughs> I always just thought it was really whiny, 90s wine rock or something. The sentiment and the delivery, both. I do not think it's the best showcase by far for the singer. I think she has much better vocal takes throughout the series. Now, that said, the crafting of the actual material of the song, once I really got in and listened to it this week... I do quite like the sample they use from the Layla Schifrin track Danube incident, which is the like the steel string guitar that it sounds like somebody hits with a hammer. 
yeah. that jangly guitar sound is, is just very cool. By the way, that was originally written for as like a piece of music for the Mission Impossible TV series. Yeah. Well, and then also, I mean, like it's the song. The da, na, na, yeah. That is the main part of this song is just sped up version of that song right it's not even just a hook it's like the the centerpiece of the whole thing i mean it's like there's yeah. it, arguably it doesn't even happen with it <laughs> as the song as we know it without that yeah so yeah so it's not it's not my favorite at all like i don't i can't say i like the song on balance partly because it feels like it just rips from a song i already was kind of familiar with and i strongly recommend everyone go out there and listen your guy was ennio morricone my guy was Lalo schifrin i've listened to a shit ton of Lalo schifrin i recommend sure. people go out and listen to more of his stuff if you especially if you like stuff in this general area of soundtracky music so but it yeah it feels more like it's just a, a bit of a ripoff combined with being whiny wow okay i guess it's possible for me to disagree with you more but i really would have to try uh i <laughs> you know who disagrees with you john peel john peel would disagree with you who championed this record uh very early on and uh, was arguably one of the key people to bring it to mainstream uh, attention and mainstream acclaim. I think that this is a perfect example of context being everything, and the fact that the the context of, of that sample and down tempo music and having not just like a great singer, but this specific singer uh, with Beth Gibbons, like just really, I guess you could characterize it as whiny. I would say more sorrowful personally, but having it with something where it's you know, for lack of a better term, clubby. Hmm. This is a perfectly indicative example of of what they were doing in a number of ways and i think it works very well it's really really hard to divorce it from the ubiquity though this was everywhere everywhere and to this day it may be the only song that some people know from portishead and i also because there's probably not gonna be another time to say it when i mentioned my tweet length review that don't ask to put in a sex scene in a movie that that's because they had so many offers for like using sour times in films and they'd always be like, okay, well, you know, tell us what's going to be about. Oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be the great. We can this amazing actress, this amazing actor. Oh, so it's going to be in a love scene then. Oh yes. It's going to be in a love scene. Is it going to be sexy? Oh yes. Very sexy. Nope. <laughs> they, could, they specifically <laughs> really did not want it because of the subject matter and because of, you know, what they actually thought of as the band. They did not want it in scenes like that because they would want it to be in something interesting. They wanted it to be in something that was cinematic or utilized in a way that uh, maybe didn't have such as obvious context because people only engage with it on that surface level. You know, I definitely, I don't blame a band for their song becoming ubiquitous. You can't blame a band for over, for being overly successful. And so I certainly, you could get annoyed by a song like this because again, like you said, it is everywhere, but I think that the song is very cool and i think it sets a mood and rob i knew you were gonna not like this song i because of the lalo <laughs> schifrin thing and rob was yeah. like putting lalo schifrin on mixtapes back in the day and being like yeah this is a great song I'm like what the fuck is wrong with you man but like no i Who get did, it like the bullet and dirty harry stuff for people that maybe don't know right like if you yeah. don't know yeah i mean well his most famous piece is the mission impossible theme song yeah yeah <laughs> I think I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I do think that this song is cool. It's a little overly hip. The whininess does not bother me at all. But again, like I liked Smashing Pumpkins and shit back in the day. So clearly I have no problem with whiny music. <laughs> I'm not maybe in that whiny phase of my life right now. Although I do 
host a weekly podcast where I complain about shit for an hour and a half. So maybe I am in the one week phase yeah, of Tell my us life. more about that, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I can't fault it. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm on a different wavelength. Like, uh, just to restate my general case, I do agree with you guys that the production here is top notch and it comes across that they have a consistent and very curated vibe for the whole thing. And I can tell a lot of care went into it. Yeah. So in general, I like those aspects of it, but I just think some of the songs work better than others. And this, I'm not even sure. I mean, Conan, would you have picked this as the single? I know it's easy to say that in retrospect. I mean, probably not, but boy, was my finger not on the pulse at this time. I mean, like I, I probably would have gone with something uh, like Wandering Star, hmm. which we will get into. Well, uh, but, <laughs> but I think that it's it's notable because like it doesn't seem obvious to me at all. Uh, but like it's also also there is something real interesting about this this song. And again, we talk about things being cinematic, radically overused. It, it's a perfect combination of like the downbeat music with like the weird out of context hook and desperation it's the it's weird because it's the desperation that is interesting about this and probably propelled it ultimately to be such a big hit but then people were trying to concentrate on how sexy it was which is like have you listened to this the the lyrics in this song (laughs) like (laughs) it's a lot of things you can say about it but uh yeah i don't know if i go with sexy first but well, it depends on what your kink is, Conan. Well, sure, sure. <laughs> My I mean, kink is super sad women. Did I leave just as sad? Yeah, yeah. I, I just like harrowing eeriness. It's quite the turn yeah. on, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Rob, to your point about the single, I was interested to learn that this song was released as the first single in the UK, and it didn't actually do all that well. It didn't work, And yet. then because of Glory Box becoming popular, they re-released it. And then that became it became huge after that, which I That's thought was right. really interesting. That Glory Box, another one that is sexy, but also kind of desperate and not really. If you listen to exactly what's going on there, it is a little bit less sexy and a little bit more like I'm kind of in a crisis. Yeah, but it's definitely the most sade sort of like <laughs> level yeah, of, of yeah. engagement. Like you can kind of get it immediately. Yeah, she even changes her voice for that song. Yeah, gets a really like front of the mouth sound. And- yeah. Oh, we're gonna get to that vocal okay. effect soon enough, Tom. <laughs> All right. Don't you worry, <laughs> sir. But first, let's go to a song that I can confidently say I did like. It's called "Wandering Stars." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just say in general, well, two things. I will say first that the record definitely grew on me as time went on. As I played it, you know, I probably gave it 15 solid listens this week at least. And so it was a bit of a slow burn. I see that it, I liked it more as time went on. But this is one of the songs that stood out to me right away. And I would have, I think I'm calling this my favorite one. The melody feels complete and well thought out to me. It doesn't just feel 
like an afterthought. And I hear what you're saying about unresolved melodies being a choice, perhaps. But this to me feels like a, a whole piece together. And I love the kind of heartbeat throb of what's happening in the bass on this song. That's a Hammond organ doing that. Bom, Sweet. Bom, bom. Yeah. Maybe those pedals. I thought that this was going to be your least favorite song. And of the songs that we're going to talk about today, this is my least favorite song. It's what? a little too monotonous for me. I This one didn't do it for me, probably because there's no bass in it. That's why I couldn't like it, of course. But right, right. I don't know. It just This one did not do it for me. And I, I agree that the melody does sound like it was well-written. I just don't really like it. Mm. I don't like the melody on this one. That's a, shocking to me, but okay. <laughs> I, well, I, I will. I, maybe, you, maybe you thought this is why I wouldn't like it, Tom, because the for whom it is preserved is a very clunky lyric, yeah. let's be honest. And it just feels very shoehorned in there. I also don't like the fact that she says wandering stars, plural, in the song every time, and then they call it Wandering Star Singular as the song. Oh, come on. Why would you do that? It's a dick move. Don't do that. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. counterpoint, the song you... fucks, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like- Were you on the debate team in high school? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Steve Holt. Uh <laughs> The, the, there, this is a relentless groove, right? And, and this, this is there's something real endearing to me about something that is like lays in. And again, for me, this was the song that like got me into them. Frankly, like I was like, oh yeah, sour times, that's fine, cool. And I was like, oh, what's this wandering star business? Okay, this is interesting. Uh, the pluralization did not bother me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, <laughs> I think she sounds really good. She's at one of her best. I have one other song where I really like her performance specifically. Yeah. That combined with, yeah, I think a groove that is not only relentless, but kind of has a menacingness to it. Very menacing, yes. You know, it feels like you're being pursued through the forest or something. By the way, the for whom it is reserved, I love that. And I, I love, but then you got to understand, I'm a big Mountain Goats fan, right? Like a lot of times John Daniel will like take like the longest way around to say something just to like, like find some poetry and like how the words land. And I, I kind of feel like that's probably what was happening here. It was like, what's it, what's it, you know, do we have a cooler way we could do that? That's fair. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't in the room when it happened, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, dark as hell. Right. Like, and I like, yeah, the idea of like, you know, like something's pursuing you in a forest, you know, even though it's like this song about sadness and despair, totally on brand. Like I, I absolutely agree. Like it's, it's, it's like, Whoa, sounds like something like really bad's about to happen. <laughs> like it's, yeah. There's definitely some modes that the band gets into. Okay. Let's, let's move on to the next tune on the focus list. It's called Pedestal. How can I Here we get into the vocal affect thing. This is Dollar Store Bjork, and I'm not having it for a second. I, that is not her best look. Wow. <laughs> Dollar Store Bjork. How long are you saving that one up for? <laughs> Damn, dude. I like this song. Yeah, Pedestal's... I, I got no problem with Pedestal. Like, it's it's fine. In fact, I feel like there's... um. 
some of the stuff that they do in the second record kind of to me like hits similarish to uh to, to pedestal i like it I, there's an interesting story from jeff barrow that when he uh, first came to bristol he had nothing but his bass and uh and he he'd been playing bass like for money basically like in sessions and stuff like that right and apparently this guy needed a fretless bass and he specifically asked for it so he was so desperate he pulled all the frets out of his bass because he needed the money <laughs> <laughs> so he basically ruined his bass to get this session work and because it was yeah. a pretty it was like a pretty well paying session right and so he could pay the rent and whatnot so that's where that whole kind of uh Jaco Pastorius kind of riff with all the harmonics apparently came from is is this bass that he ruined and <laughs> vulgarly transformed into a fretless bass, which I think is an amazing story. It makes me like the song a lot more. Yeah, yeah it's not as easy to put the frets back in. <laughs> Wait, no, get them no, out. Let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> he had to get them back from the pawn shop first. That he so sure sold them to. But I, I, I thought the bass work on this was fantastic. It's a nice, slick little line that sounds like a sample because of the length of it it just sort yeah. of you know it, it's like four bars and then kind of just repeats again and again but you can tell he's also playing live to it it's very slick i loved the trumpet on this one and i wanted to know who was playing the trumpet because it's oh, not yeah. a sample that they listed and they didn't tell who was playing the trumpet it's got to be somebody in the band but it was this is the way to use the record scratching when the trumpet comes in they kind of scratch 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 drop into the trumpet and that is perfect it was so cool and then in the middle they fuck it up a little bit with a little bit more scratching in there i thought that was really cool and again really atmospheric and put me back into you know a smoky club in the 20s in harlem or something like that sure yeah the guy credited is called andy haig he's that's the only thing he plays on okay on the record so he's he's outside the the main group but i guess they brought him in for this nice yeah i thought that was a nice tonal break from you know different tone that we hadn't heard yet he's the only horn on the entire record yeah I just felt like the song was a little forgettable, and I was really bumped by her her vocal affect. I think that's where I'm coming from. I was it's not my favorite song, but I did like this song. I liked it's it good. more than Wandering Star. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so do you guys not like this like the space echo ishness of it, where the vocals kind of spiral off after every line? Because uh, I, I think that's one of the cooler. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that's. I just like it better when she plays it straighter. I just like it better when it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's great though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not commenting on the echo. The echo is fine. Use all the space echo, rolling space echo you want, guys. I've had it. Okay, let's move on to the last song we're going to talk about. It's called Roads. Did you get it? Yeah, this played on the roads. It's 
called Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. I think that they're playing it through the speakers, the built-in speakers on the roads and miking that up because the speakers that they're, they're it's coming out of sound like shit in a great way. Like yeah. it sounds, it's got like a little breakup on it. It sounds like there's like, you know, the wires are all old and frayed and shit, but it sounds really cool. I, I think that the particularly the sound of the roads maybe justifies calling the song Rhodes because it is a really cool song. <laughs> really cool sound. I think it's definitely got that sort of late 60s, 70s soundtrack feel. And apparently it was uh, somewhat inspired by Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, with mm. John Carpenter, there's there's like a theme that's like on the fender R H O D E S Rhodes when the um when the little girl gets shot by the ice cream van and apparently that's kind of like what was, was sticking in their head when they were putting this together and uh, yeah I I think this for me that's right down the line like that and I'm a big John Carpenter fan as well like I think John Carpenter's his soundtrack stuff is fantastic yeah John Carpenter is a director who also always makes his own soundtracks right. as a musician yes which yeah. is. He's had some hits, the Halloween soundtrack, for instance. Yep. But yeah, it's you know it. Even if you don't think you know it, you know like like his soundtrack work. And and, and I feel like you also know when people rip it off as well. Mm. <laughs> 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 no, that kind of shit going on in like every horror film from the eighties. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I dug this one too. So I think I already said that Wandering Star was my favorite. But actually, this is where I wrote the words "my favorite." Yeah. And so I dig this. I think it's the most purposefully put together song to me. So for all the care that went into these things, and maybe they just weren't going for like standard song structure. This just felt like it had the a beginning, a middle and an end. I love, did you guys notice? I'm sure this was done purposely that the organ delay yeah. is not in tempo with the song. It's like At weirdly <laughs> out of tempo. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 With the song. Yeah. Which just makes it sound like, like, like kind of more weirdly off putting uh, in that way. Like it doesn't sound like it would, it would sound like maybe a little sweeter if it was like right there with it, but it's obvious. It's an obvious aesthetic choice to make it not match. 99% of the time on an album, you hear that and you're like, that's a fuck up. Yeah. This one, you know, it's not a fuck up because it's, yeah. it perfectly fits with their aesthetic. And also they did put a lot of care into the production. This is definitely my favorite song. Uh, I thought this one was fantastic. I could have seen like a Roberta Flack singing over this song oh, or totally. something. Yeah, yeah. Had like a Motown kind of like old soul vibe that I really, really dug. And then I did not even realize that there was no bass until w- the bass drops in at 320. It's so and good it when perfect. it comes in, too. Perfect. It's absolutely <laughs> so perfect when the bass drops in. I was like, yeah. I didn't even know I was missing it. And now everything just comes together. It's really, really tasty. And I think you're right. Like it's it's got the it's maybe the torchiest of all the torch songs that they, that they have on this record too. Like it, it's, but in a way, it's it's so the emotionality of it is so raw. And I think Beth is like right in her sweet spot for portraying that. You just get that deep desire to like connect. Yeah. Out of out of out of uh, her performance, and I mean again, I think she's a stellar vocalist, and she's really on display here. I agree. I agree with all that. I also think, like you're saying, there are multiple kick-ins. There's a, a level of additive production, and I think more 
more ideas or more instruments being brought to bear here than previously. There's like a wah guitar kick in at 145 that also oh, yeah. really does it for me. And then, of course, the strings later in the song like are really beautiful. So there's a nice crescendo to this whole thing that I think some of the other songs lacked, or at least they didn't stand out as much. That paired with what I think of as a really nice, complete melody and a great vocal performance. Now, that said, I do have a complaint. <laughs> All right, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to sound particularly ironic for listeners of this podcast, I'm sure, because if you go to 439, there is just a second of a very disgusting mouth noise <laughs> that makes me gag a bit. <laughs> what they say, how can it feel this wrong? Because, listen, I thought what this music required was was loud listening in headphones. Yeah. I think that's where it does shine. And so I didn't get all my listens in that way. But I tried to get a couple in, which really cranked. And it's gross. I got to tell you, my <laughs> note on this one was this is another one that sounds like the microphone is super hot and she's super close up. Yeah. Potentially even like putting her hands around it at times to give different kind of treatments to it. So that would make sense that when your mic's really hot and you do a little movement of the lips, you get a really gross Everything's going to be more pronounced. Uh, yeah. Whatever you're doing is going to just be <laughs> writ large. Right? But overall, I I do think that the intimacy of the performance when it is really close mic like that comes across really well again it's, it feels like it's in your ear not like she's competing absolutely. with the band or anything like that but then it's no, absolutely doubly gross that that sound is in your ear as well <laughs> yeah i mean I'm, I'm half joking it didn't really bump me except i just happened to hear it on one of my listens then you kind of can't unhear it yeah so audience you can thank me for that later there's one more thing i wanted to mention about this song which is there's a credit in the album credits of a guy the engineer for the whole record he gets one musical credit and it's for playing something called the nose flute now the nose flute has been called it has been called the most annoying instrument on earth oh okay <laughs> but i can't find it in the song so i'm actually curious if you guys heard nose it nose flute no i don't think not that i'm aware of i mean i've heard this record i can't tell you how many times but nose flute that sounds like a weird euphemism for like I'm going to do some cocaine. Going to go play the yeah. nose flute. We're going to play the nose flute a little bit in the uh, back room there yeah, before I hit this solo. Exactly. It's nose fruit. <laughs> it's some nose fruit for the nose flute. Well, listeners, if you know where it is or can pick it out or can give me a timestamp, please, please, Dave write to us. Dave McDonald, tell us. Yes, and I think he was considered, when I listened to interviews, he was considered a, a fourth member of the panel. It seems like they have a lot of fourth <laughs> members of this band, <laughs> but he, he worked very closely. But, you know, we don't want to actually give him band status and pay him or anything, but he's the engineer. He, okay. he was credited with, uh, I think it was Unerring Judgment in the Line of Fire in the album's liner notes, because I do have the CD of this. And I was like, what, the guy with the nose flute? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have that nose flute. Okay, I so think we've questions. gabbed quite enough about Portishead's dummy. Now that most exciting of moments on the podcast, we're going to vote and tell you, dear listener, if you actually need to listen to Portishead's dummy before you die. Tom, what say you? I'm going to go with the yes on this one. I didn't quite like the album. It was unexpected. I did not think I was going to like it. Frankly, the first like 12 seconds of the album, I was like, oh, God damn it. I can't believe I have to listen to this. 
but it really hooked me. It did. I found it to be atmospheric. Maybe it just happened to hit me at the right time. It's fall. It's foggy here. So there's lots of, you know, kind of weird cinematic atmospheric shit going on. But I think that it's a pretty compelling album. I'm probably not going to listen to it again tomorrow, but I will definitely listen to it again in the future. Okay. Conan, what say you? Look, man, this is a moody, cinematic, unsettling, vibey masterwork, as we canonically established with my Sweet Length review. And uh, <laughs> nothing in this conversation has changed my mind on that. This is this is absolute yes. And that is not to say that all trip-hop should be considered, but this record especially, it, it's you need to hear it for sure. Fair enough. Well, this is Rob here. I'm going to give it a yes as well. I did appreciate many aspects Whoa. of it. It's not, listen, just because it's not 100% my lane, I can appreciate that it was something that was poured over and a lot of care was put in. And I do think they achieved what they were, what they were going for. Uh, and, and there was some really, really tasty music in there. In fact, I wouldn't mind listening to it again, to be honest with you. And I certainly didn't mind listening to it this week, even though it does require a certain mood, I believe. So it's a yes for me. Go ahead and listen to it. I think it did influence a lot of people. It was certainly better than the half of a Massive Attack record I listened to today. I can tell you that. <laughs> massive Attack taking some shrapnel in the back end. <laughs> I I agree, by the way. It's not for me. It's fine. Whatever. Okay. We got a couple more things to get to here. We're going to do mailbag. We're going to do next week's homework. But Conan, I just wanted to give you a chance. Do your plugs, buddy. Where, where do people find you? Where do people get more Conan? Yeah, man. So I guess most... Relevant to the program uh, is that my weekly podcast, Kona Neutrons Protonic Reversal, entering its 10th year now, uh, is Ooh. available anywhere you find your podcasts. And ProtonicReversal.com archives are always available for free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. Uh, Marnie Stern coming up this week. Very excited for that. She's awesome. I just had Nina Nastasia, Simon Vani from Crime of the City Solution. Like, it's, uh, you know, if you're the kind of person that likes digging into music, I've had a lot of people on my show that would probably be of interest to you. So if you, it's a generally speaking one-on-one long form interview show and it's, it, I mean, 10 years in podcast years is like what? 50 years yeah. in real life. <laughs> yeah. You're a, you're a pioneer. You, you bring energy and enthusiasm to every single conversation. I can attest Conan and you do also get great guests, but I think more important, you're excited about every single person you talk to. And that really comes through. That's the key to the show for sure. Thank you, Rob. And then of course, uh, Conan Neutron, the secret friends has a new split, LP record with Lung called Adult Prom that we just did a whole West Coast uh, tour for. And uh, there's going to be more legs of that coming up in the spring of next year. But you can find that Learning Curve Records, neutronfriends.bandcamp.com. You can Spotify, Tidal, iTunes, whatever. Friendster, I'm sure it's on. Like whatever these things you get it on, it's all there. Uh, There's another Code of Neutron, the Secret Friends record that is done. More or less, that is all over. Jeez. But the mixing, how do you have time? But that's going to be like a, that's going to be a fall of next year uh, kind of situation. So uh, there's it's all over, but the mixing. That's a good <laughs> album title. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and I am very excited uh, for that one as well. But there's a, a, usually a good amount of touring coming up. We got some exciting stuff up for 2024. Nothing till the end of the year. Uh, and of course, I'd be remiss since we've mentioned the word cinematic so much on this episode that I'm on a show called Movie Next Extravaganza, where it's a uh, lively and irreverent but informed discussion on uh, different types of films, both uh, highbrow, midbrow, popular sphere, all that. And uh, there's a bunch of cool episodes of that coming up. Movie Next Extravaganza, um, available wherever you get your podcast there, too, also on YouTube. 
and uh, that's probably it's probably enough caterwaul is not till like may so busy man conan we're gonna put those links of course in the episode notes i'm two for two by the way Funhouse and uh, and and Dummy, both two. Oh, for you two. want us over? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say like I, I'm, I'm, if, if it's it's not a contest, but if it was, I'd be winning. You you warmed our our rockest hearts. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't I was not sure how this one was gonna land. Honestly, I was like, this could go either way. I was gonna compliment the live show too, Conan. If you have a chance to see Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends coming to your town, first of all, you you tour doggedly all the time. I can't believe you made it all the way out to Sacramento. Bravo on a Monday. But, yeah, hi- <laughs> Yeah, on a Monday, but high energy, great show. You're a showman in all regards. So check out the links, support Conan, and go check him out live if you can. I think you were, I believe you expressed surprise at how much uh, it, it, it chugled a little bit. Or was it chugle or boogie? What did you say? That you had some sort of informed comment. That... <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever said that first word. So. <laughs> That's a credenceism. Credence Clearwater Revival. Okay. Uh, keep on yeah, chugling. Gotcha. But yeah. uh, right, yeah. a little ramble tamble, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got kind of like a cheap trick with extra distortion thing going on. Yeah, I, I, I accept that very good compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Dick Conan. We're gonna go dip our hands into the old mailbag, ye old mailbag, and pull some missives out. First one comes from Brian, who's writing all the way from Melbourne. He writes, hey guys, this is Brian from the rock and roll capital of the Southern Hemisphere, Melbourne, Australia. He sounds kind of like you, Conan, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's good. (laughs) Repping his town. He says, I love listening to the pod. It's a roller coaster. I'm learning a lot about the way songs are put together, and this has enhanced my listening experience. I particularly love the recent Radiohead episode. Complaint. Sometimes I feel you guys are a little too constrained in your views. This seems due to being relatively young and also musicians. Your default tends to be correct structure and playing. There were times when the most important thing was that what you like to listen to differentiated you. And whether it was well played or structured was irrelevant. It was how you felt. I clearly remember days when Top 40 dominated the airwaves. And to hear anything different, you really had to seek it out. And along came punk rock and new wave and electronic music and all this stuff. And it was significant and radical, these new musical movements, in providing a departure from the mainstream. It had effect on everything. The historical context is important. He compliments us at the end and says, I'm very happy that both 17 Seconds by The Cure and Surfer Rosa Pixies albums resulted in a yes. Spoiler alert if you haven't listened to those. They're two of my favorites. Looking forward to more albums from that era going forward i'll just jump in right here and say thanks brian we agree the historical context is important it's impossible to call it back if we didn't live through it but we try our best to understand that but we appreciate your context on the matter and you're right structure and lyrics and other aspects of musicality really pale in comparison to what you feel when you listen to music i would have to agree with that i think that was like my whole point with funhouse right <laughs> like of, 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 of like the whole reason like why it, it deserved uh, inclusion in the echelon was just that that exact mindset fair enough well and i also always appreciate being called young Thank you very I was much. Gonna, I was going to say, clearly, clearly he's never seen any <laughs> We are an audio-only production at this point. If you, yeah, if you yeah. ever go to video, you'll be like, oh, okay. You guys, you guys present as young enough, for sure. I mean, Young like, enough. You we just know. dress terribly. That's yeah. why. <laughs> yes. And uh, we got one more here, a quick one. Gareth from the UK writes, I'm so glad that you liked the Kinks Village Green Preservation Society. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on the Village Green Preservation Society 
episode, I think it is a favorite of a lot of the UK folks. He says, to give some additional context, this was English irony before it had been thought of, poking fun at the entrenched Middle Englanders that unfortunately do still exist, whose purpose is to worry about how many flavors of jam they can get or reminiscing <laughs> about playing cricket in the rain. I, th- I think we heard something similar from another UK listener. Yeah. Very tongue-in-cheek. But I agree. Thanks for the context. He closes by saying, look, guys, yours is the one podcast update I get that makes me really happy. Don't Aww. ever stop until you've killed all thousand and one. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll certainly try. But I, you know, no guarantees. Well, if you think we got it wrong on Portishead or you want to yell at us or yell at me, I imagine is going to be the case about what I said incorrectly or who I unfairly maligned, or you want to give us more context on any of the episodes, write us an email over at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And now I'm going to kick it over to Tom to give us our homework for next week. All right. Thank you all very much. I have the Albinator here. And I can only hope that it's going to give us another just kind of chill, relaxing, atmospheric album. <laughs> Fun-loving so criminals. We're... Wait, we already did that one. Oh, God. No, I would quit. <laughs> would not make it to 1001 if it was the next was a Fun-loving criminals. Let's spin that old wheel and find out what we are going to listen to next week. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Rust in Peace, and the band is Megadeth. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Haven't heard that one. Whiplash. I love it. <laughs> that- Compliments already on the album title. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. What, what is that? Does that Tornado of Souls on it? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Well, because there's the one song that was in the MTV MTV News break. The ding, 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 Oh, that's I didn't know that was a Megadeth song. It it is, and they just still use that little like kind of bass break on it, but it's a great little bass break. Um, that is not this record though. This is oh, Tornado of Souls is on this one. Yes, that yep, Tornado yep. of Souls, yes, yep. which is touted oh, as one of the like you know very technically difficult guitar solos to play. Just kind of super shreddy. Cool. Looking forward to it. Well. Give slap Megadeth on the old Victrola and, and play it loud <laughs> and be proud. Like, These chumps still haven't done the Beatles, and they they're doing a Megadeth record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone someone somewhere is yelling at their device. <laughs> Do you really need us to talk about the Beatles? It's Come enough, on, really? really. It's, it's been done to death. Listen, we we're at the whim of the Albinator. I don't know what to tell you guys. <laughs> I forgot that Megadeth has a record called Youth in Asia, but it's Y O U T H. Yeah. And, totally. it's, and it's got babies hanging on a clothesline as the, uh, oh my God, who yeah. told, somebody should have told Dave Mustaine no. They're like, dude, you have two pun album names? Come on, man. <laughs> Come on, bro. That's enough. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to look forward to that next week. Megadeth, rest in peace. Listen along with us. But we're going to close it out for today. Thanks again to our guest, Conan Neutron, rocker Conan Neutron, I should say. And for 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I've been Tom. And I've been Conan Neutron. Boosh. Boosh.